0: Fresh Art International presents conversations about creativity in the 21st century. Good morning. This is Fresh Art International. I'm Kathy Bird. Our podcast and radio show explore the world's cultural landscape. We engage at the intersection of digital media, sound art, and social practice to spark conversations about contemporary art, film, and architecture. And today, we're in the studio at Jolt Radio Miami, bringing you a conversation about our collective destiny. And what does it mean to think and act and make art collectively or with the collective in mind? With me in the studio are Quinn Harrelson and Troy Simmons.
1: Hi, hello everyone. Troy Simmons.
2: Hi, it's Quinn.
0: They are here representing an exhibition that's about to open at Bakehouse Art Complex called Collectivity. Also in the studio, Marie Vickles. Hello. And Giovanna Gonzalez. Hey. They are part of another exhibition that just opened called Visions of the Future at Little Haiti Cultural Complex. Finally, Micelle Soto is here with sand. Hi, Kathy. Hi. We don't have piles of sand here, but I am dressed as sand, (laughs) wearing a sandy-colored Frock. So his project we'll be talking about last this very vital conversation that we have about our collective destiny and having to do with being a coastal community. First off, I want to introduce Quinn Harrelson, a young and emerging curator, founder of Current Projects, which he stepped away from a bit right now because he's working on curating an exhibition for Bakehouse Complex.
2: Yes, I'm very excited.
0: Yeah, welcome to Fresh Art International. Let's talk about this project. It's called Collectivity. The works are site-specific, from what I understand.
2: The works are site-specific. So I actually um, grew up going to the bakehouse when I was in elementary school, the woman who would drive me home, my elementary school best friend's mom, had a studio there. And so I would come all the time when I was a kid and then totally forgot about it. It's not really super prominent in the Miami arts community. And so when Kathy left and move there, she invited me to come back. And I didn't know it was the same place that I had been to growing up for a long time until I did. And then it sort of hit me. And so I wanted to do something that engaged the building that I had this long history with but also... It's a really peculiar building. It's like one of the strangest buildings that you've been in in Miami. It's one of the only ones that really does have an industrial history. That was one of the chief primary concern going in.
0: It used to be a bakery, and it's got all the buildings related to the bakery. And it is in Wynwood. It's still part of Wynwood.
1: It's an original, I would say, building there in Wynwood. And again, like Quinn said, a lot of people look over the building in a way. It's just a raw industrial building. One of Few, I would say, that's still around here, in Miami. Show that Quinn has uh, put together and curated collectivity. The arts and the artists have come together and almost like they collectively have supported this building and like kept it around and kept it alive. It's so, gone through ups and downs, and it's a period as far as people like actively moving around in it. But the artists have been there since the '80s, and it's a great building, a lot of history. Since the '80s, it's been transitioning into this building of sixty
2: artists all coming together collectively and like keeping this building alive.
0: Tell me about how you curated this project.
2: Yes, so we wanted to include a lot of artists who had been at the Bakehouse before the Bakehouse sort of became what it was now. It was initially the Grove House, and then the Grove House was shut down sort of as the Coconut Grove began to become gentrified, and the city actually gave this community of artists the Bakehouse. And so over the course of the more than, I guess, three-decade history, we had a master list of about 250, 300 artists who had been in residence in some kind of capacity at the Bakehouse, and we wanted to talk to a lot of them about what the Bakehouse meant to them. And so we sent out an open call, and then I, along with Ade from Pam and Stephanie Seidel from the ICA, juried that open call, and then from there cobbled together a show.
0: So there are how many artists represented in this project?
2: So there are 13 artists, but nine projects, because a lot of people are working as a collective. We have Midnight Thrift. and um, <laughs> We
0: have a built-in collective. We have
2: built-in yeah. collectives, absolutely, yeah.
0: And then there's one collective that was forged in the process of curating.
2: Yeah, that was a very inspiring, I think, success of the show, is that we got a lot of people to think about collectivity in a way that was a little bit more material. And so they turned to their own lives and said, how do I work more collaboratively? And so Sterling Rook and Nicole Salcedo ended up deciding to merge their practices for the show.
0: And they're going to do a line that's woven that will go weave its way through the physical space.
2: So she's an illustrator, and he's a textile artist, and so he created this textile, this woven rope made out of cloth waste, and she's going to use it as if she was drawing with a pencil. That's cool. I think so. As if
0: drawing with a pencil. Well, we have a very abstract piece that's going to be there that is by Domingo Castillo, who did this project, a short film, a prologue to a bigger project called Tropical Malez which centers around a post-human future, which involves no collective practices, <laughs> potentially. I mean, if we're not there, if the human element is gone, then what? Could you describe a little bit his project and this film?
2: So what I'm interested in most significantly in Domingo's film is the way in which he arrives at this possible post-human future. And what he's looking at is immaterial renderings of the future, a speculative way of looking at time. The way that we look at time in a place like Miami that's in this constant state of becoming, we're looking at it through renderings that haven't been built yet. And so Domingo's using those material ways of depicting actual reality as a way of understanding reality itself. And so it becomes about collective beliefs and the way that we collectively invest in a future that is in many ways fabricated. And so for that project, the film Tropical Melise, prologue to Tropical Melise, was scored by a guy named Nick Klein. And for Collectivity, Domingo's working on the full feature-length film, and he got it scored by Wilted Woman. And that score is going to be pressed as a vinyl record, and that record will be played over a number of listening parties that happen throughout the duration of the show.
0: We'll describe the visual experience. We have a bit of a sample of Tropical Malaise to share with you, but if you close your eyes and kind of imagine, it's a futuristic film with a computer-generated imagery that is representing a landscape, the water, the planets, the shape of the dimensional space that is not visible, and There are robotic-type voices and a sense of artificial nature. Those are the ways I would describe it. Do you have anything to add to that just before we take people into that universe?
2: I don't think so. It's a strange universe to be in.
0: (laughs) Okay. Let's hear from Domingo Castillo, Tropical Malaise. From a step of gold, among cords of silk, gray gauzes, green velvets, and crystal discs that darken like bronze in the sun, I see the foxglove open on a carpet of silver filigree, of eyes and of hair. Pits of yellow gold seated in agate, pillars of mahogany supporting a dome of emeralds, bouquets of white satin, and a fine rods of ruby surrounded the water rose. Like a god with enormous blue eyes and configurations of snow, the sea and the sky attracts the marble terraces to the multitudes of young and hardy roses. What I think is interesting here is this goes along with a statement that you wrote, Quinn, about the failure right now of being able to distinguish between the collective and the individual. And I think a post-human world definitely implies that.
2: Absolutely. So I think one of the things that I knew coming into the project was that Bakehouse was going to undergo a significant change, mostly because As society has changed, so has what it takes to be an artist and what it takes to make art. And so the Bakehouse, which really hasn't changed how it supports artists, maybe should in order to support changing practices. And I think part of that is the artist's engagement with the Internet, which allows that line between the individual and the collective to be increasingly blurred.
0: Speaking of blurring the past and present in this exhibition, Christina Pedersen is actually going to do something with the bakery,
2: Yes, Christina's project is fascinating. So she found out that because wheat doesn't grow in the tropics, the way that bread was made in Florida for thousands of years before Florida became kind of what it is today was this four-step process that engages the Kunti plant. Take the arrowroot from Kunti and then do all of these things to it, and then you get bread. The problem is that if you make one misstep, you do get something that is a tad poisonous. So in 1925, the FDA banned the production of Kunti on a commercial level. Previous to that there were, you know, significant factories that were making bread out of Kunti at an industrial scale. And then in 1926 there's a very significant hurricane that blows through Florida, takes out the last of those factories, and then the American Bakeries Company is built for the first time using starch that isn't connected to the land in any way to do this very collective thing of both making bread and breaking bread. And so Christina has gone to the Everglades through Fairchild, got some Kunti plants, and then engaged a lot of members of the indigenous community to try to figure out how to bring back that process, which has been almost entirely lost.
0: <laughs> Completely wild. Totally wild. Leave it to Christina Leave to, it to Christina, find yeah. the, the most esoteric way of entering into a, an environment. That's so cool. So I'll be there for some bread, Oops. see what happens. <laughs> is the Midnight Thrift going to actually do some thrifting? We're going to have a chance to acquire thrift store items, or is that just a moniker to imply the time of night they meet.
2: So Midnight Thrift has done quite a bit of thrifting in the past. One of my favorite shirts is from Midnight Thrift. I actually fought with Misael over it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> or rather, he tried to steal it from me. Um, <laughs> but they are doing something actually a little bit more complicated, which is that they've been working together for quite a while. The four of them, Herman Casaseras, Amanda Ortega, Joshua Weasley, and Kayla Del Serrata. For this project, Joshua decided that he wanted to step away. He just didn't have the time to work on it. And so they decided instead of doing something as a collective, they were going to make their work as individuals. They all have individual practices and present it as if they had made it collectively. And so the question becomes to what extent, after working together for so long, have their individual identities been kind of merged? And has the collective been subsumed by the individual?
0: Hence your statement.
2: Hence my statement.
0: (laughs) Well, someone that works with aggregate systems, the environment, and architecture is Troy Simmons. Welcome.
1: Well, thank you. I'm excited to uh, be here.
0: Shall we do a shout out to Texas right now? Yeah, We're both sure. from Texas. Yeah.
1: Fellow Texans. He grew up he
0: grew up in the piney woods. I grew yeah. up out in the desert.
1: <laughs> Two different areas. Looking of
0: for water, looking for water and my whole life.
1: East Texas with plenty of water everywhere. <laughs> and plus Houston, Texas, as we all know.
0: So I like that dichotomy in your work. You're influenced by nature, but you're also very influenced by 1950s brutalist architecture. That's kind of not always something that people would think of in the same sentence.
1: Yeah, you know, I was led into the world of environmental issues and thoughts and things. Growing up in Texas, you know, it was a lot of things going on with reforestation, environment, and and the issues that are happening with water, water treatment, and things like that. So it kind of drew me in to the environmental issues uh, about living in Texas and exploring the the piney woods out there. And it just kind of got me started in the whole art world, just exploring nature and getting into the woods in, in Texas.
0: And we'll be finding a connection, that reforestation idea, with reclamation of land when we talk to Missao. so sure. I couldn't have planned this group better. Tell me about your project for Collectivity. It has a plant name.
1: Yeah, the name of the piece for the show is called Burkemia, which is from the plant species name Brachemia Scandin, which is a kind of parasitic plant that grows out in East Texas and Alabama. I guess the uh, common name for it is Alabama supplejack. In Texas, uh, you know, I was out, like I said, walking through the woods, exploring things with my grandfather in East Texas, and I came across this thing. And it's almost like a, a snake. If you can imagine like a python or something the size of an average thigh or an arm or something, and it like wraps around trees. And in its quest to reach sunlight, it kind of supporting the other tree that it's on, and as it gets older, it kind of destroys that tree. And I found the fascination in it because of just the structure and what it does and which way it grows. Uh, And it led me in as a kid, you know, like, what is this thing? People in the area would cut it because it would get on power lines or get on the other trees and rip their trees down. So people would cut it and discard it. I would grab the pieces they cut and take the skin off of it and I realized that it was some really interesting wood underneath and I was, at the time I was into wood grain and I was into like the texture of wood and all that as a kid and so you know I just took this piece of wood back home to Houston and played with it and manipulated it and I Took little parts that were cut, and I added that part to another part. This, this juxtaposition between this element in nature and also the hard city life of Houston—you know, the hard concrete—the city life there was just totally like this contrasting juxtaposition that was interesting to me. So it led me into loving architecture, and so the piece that I'm doing is kind of related to all of this, all melted together with the building in Miami.
0: Right. I posted a photo today about your work, with sort of a drawing. You shared with me a CAD drawing of what you thought it might end up looking like structurally. And then you had another image of a recent work that had this Concrete. Yeah, this, this piece, what does it have to do with Bakehouse?
1: You know, the history behind Bakehouse and the structure of this building that's there. And I really dig deep into almost like post apocalyptic situations where the earth comes back and takes over the elements that we've already built. So, this particular piece is kind of like a modern take on that, where we have a material that's aluminum, which is a human made material, into this building that's been a dilapidated state and could be in a dilapidated state. But collectively, the artists have come in and helped structurally support that. So what this piece does is it goes around a column inside of the building. It's all aluminum, but it's like a humanistic take on a cellular plant material growing around this structure and collectively like as the artist as the representation of this material, going up and wrapping on the column and supporting the building in a way. So we have this juxtaposition between this material that's plant-like, biomorphic, reaching up, wrapping around the building, and then going and supporting, and also possibilities of ripping it apart. This particular piece, named Burkimia, is a representation of us as humans and as artists on this structure, supporting it, but also, if we're not careful, we can actually tear it down.
0: We could take that in a broader way to talk about our arts community and how we each individually can be as strong in support for it, but we can also... Tear it apart. Exactly. And uh, uh, Miss Allen and I had a minute this morning. We're talking about this sense of collective energy right now in Miami and the way things are unfolding. It seems like we have some chance of holding each other up instead of <laughs> tearing, tearing each out. other down. <laughs> but that idea of the symbiotic relationship between the artist and a residency space physically Whether the space is run down or not, the artists are the energy that holds it together as a place where they come to work together and produce art. A space in our community that is in danger of being kind of pulled apart by forces outside its control is Little Haiti. Gentrification is a big issue there, and one of the main areas there that is a cultural site is the Little Haiti Cultural Complex. They just opened a show, the 8th Annual Local Artist Series Exhibition. Marie. Yes. So good to see you (laughs) in the studio again. Thank you. Marie's a curator and an educator, and her interest is the Caribbean, or Caribbean, which part of the Caribbean you come from, you Mm -hmm. would pronounce it a different (laughs) way. I found out in my travels this year, we... Had a conversation before, very short, about your role there. You bring together exhibitions all year long to feature art in that context. Yes.
3: It's a lovely space that I feel so fortunate to be a part of. And over the last going on nine years at this point, we have been able to support the work of local artists and provide a space for them to be
0: seen and grow from that point forward. It's an amazing facility. This time you have eight artists of Afro-Caribbean and Latin American descent. Mm-hmm. I know one. I've actually produced a podcast with mm-hmm. Najamoon Moon and the Black Family representing her. And this is a new book that she's just created. Yeah. So yeah, let me shout
3: out all the artists that are in this show, Visions of the Future. So it features the work of Dudley Alexis, Marcus Blake, Carolina Cueva, Nate D., Giovanna Gonzalez, Rain Hansen, Naja Moon, and Marquita Keeley. And all of these artists, they're at different stages in their development as artists, different stages in their career. And the show came together, I think as, I don't know, all the shows I work on, I feel they come together in a very organic kind of way. That's the beauty of
0: following intention and intuition in in the way we work. The title you gave it is Visions of the Future. I did like this idea, and that's where I got the other part of the title of our show, Mm. Destiny. Yes. Destiny belongs, you wrote, I don't know if that's a quote from someone else. Destiny belongs to those who claim the future while living in the present. So it's actually interesting. That quote came from
3: a random piece of paper that was left over from an art program that we were working on called Art Detectives at PAM. Like everything layers into each other and connects and I was cleaning out some of our papers after, after the program, and I found this quote on the paper, and I'm like, gosh, that's awesome. So I looked it up. I'm like, who wrote this? Was it the kids? Was it the teachers? I haven't found who to attribute it to yet, but if anyone knows,
0: let me know. <laughs> yeah, jot us a line. Yeah. I like the idea of it because, again... It relates to collectivity. Mm -hmm. It relates to the Bakehouse past, present, and future. It relates to the past, present, and future of Little Haiti. Whether Mm -hmm. we claim a responsibility for it or feel that we bring these conversations to the ears of our listeners so that we don't just let it happen, we claim the future. Absolutely. So Giovanna Gonzalez is here, and I encountered her work before I met her, in a window of a Walgreens store. That's how kind of crazy, wonderful the arts community in Miami is. They find ways to have art pop up in strange places. And the Bass Museum has the windows of these pharmacies, drugstores, and she had this piece that I noticed because it was in plain view that involved tires and poetry. I watched other people like, Reading it as they walked by and smiling, that's where I got the word smell for the subtitle of the show, <laughs> because of your poem. To introduce Giovanna, she's a Miami and Berlin-based artist and curator, working in the area of translation and communication and looking at technology and consumer-driven culture, as well as that idea of pushing back against it to humanize our environment to humanize our interactions and our social behavior. Tell me what motivated that project, your series of storytelling with art that involves a poet.
4: Yeah, so the poet's name is Martin Jackson. This project that you saw, as well as the work that is a part of Visions of the Future, is part of a larger series that I'm working on that's called How To basically it runs parallel with a collection of poems called Tutorials that is by Martin Jackson. So his whole collection is about translation and communication and tutorials learning. Like I decided that I wanted to do an iteration of that and do a visual translation for each of the poems. So I really put a lot of work on myself. <laughs> it's been fantastic. So essentially yeah, I dissect pieces of the poem and figure out what works out for me in a very abstract way, like what I like, am meditating with at
0: that point in time that I'm working with it. It's like an experimental practice that you have because you've got the how to lean forward, how to forget. You have all these sort of instructional right opportunities for people to think about human relationships is what I'm taking. Exactly.
4: Yeah. So, I mean, it's like, it's using ideas of open source translation. It's using ideas of communication, whether it be like in-person communication, online communication, what sort of like barriers that creates or doesn't. So really thinking about like what gets lost, I think is probably the most essential point is how things automatically transform as soon as you put it through any form of funnel. And I think that's where I find the most interesting parts about the whole project is seeing, like, ah, what happens when you give it an, an iteration and then how that kind of changes already. So it has, like, a life as its own. Like, what does it mean for me to take Martin's poem and do something with it? And then what does it mean for somebody else to do something with what I've done? It's definitely blooming. It's a process and has a lot of room
0: for interpretation. One thing I'd love to know about is what's with the tires, Right. Um, (laughs) Tires figure in her work, cast forms of tires figure in your work a lot, and there was one piece called Ride or Die, I believe.
4: Yeah, Forever Ride or Die, which is... Oh, Forever
0: Ride or Die.
4: Yeah, so that... What were you
0: talking about there?
4: So that was for a particular show that was in Berlin. It's curated by Coven Berlin, which is this queer feminist collective that I'm a part of. The title of the show is called Lucky, and it was thinking about the social, political implications, what it means to be lucky, and how that like normalizes privilege. I was just kind of thinking about the Wheel of Fortune, the tarot card. And that kind of then inspired me to make this car tire. And then the car tires also are a part of this installation that you saw for the Walgreens Windows Vitrine as well.
0: I like that. You have a relationship with your work. Once you make it, you see it can be reconfigured, placed in juxtaposition, different ways to tell different stories. So I think that's something we can all learn about our work. I think I'd love to share with our listeners the sound of your muse, instructor, collaborator, Martin Jackson. <laughs> so we have a little tutorial, in a way, yep. about how to write a poem from him, and I think we should all take notes and see what we can do with this. It's titled, It's Really Very Easy.
5: Start with an empty scene. Good. Then select from these templates. Sun range, landscape, post nylon, and so on. Choose sun range. Good. Change the Asimov angle of the sun all the way down for a night scene in the middle to get this sort of timber dusk. Good. Take a look at com to find the correct sun for San Antonio. Okay, so fourth icon left is your object library. Go to Nature and select Texas Red Oaks, Texas Red Buds, Magic Lily, Spiny Mat Rush and scatter some Nafre Swamp Foxtail there. Yes, this is starting to be good. Now. Take all of your trees that are like spring, summer by default and use the autumn generator to Yes, there we go. Good. Good. Now go to your transport inventory and select a car, doesn't matter which. SUVs are the, look at that Ford Bronco, good. Red is the most standard colour. And see, you, so you get this kind of silhouette of a driver in there. I mean, it's not one of those make or break things, but it's sure, it makes it all a bit more convincing. Good. What else? Okay, yes, boys and girls, I want a little girl just here to give like a stand or a family or community. Place her on, there, good. Looks like she's looking at something, so let's give her something to look at. More of those lilies there in front of her, but smaller, yes, good. You can scale everything, vectors, everything is scalable. Once you're happy, I'm happy with this, so the next thing to do is let's make a walkthrough. Click the camera icon that takes you into film mode. The screen changes and it looks like you're peering through the lens of a good. Now you're ready to walk through.
0: Wow, that was a beautiful piece. It makes me want to write a poem. It really does. His poem called Polycyclic Aromatic Hydrocarbons made me look up what that means. Raise your hand in this room if you know what that means. Okay, I had to look it up and guess what? The source of the definition I found on the page for the Agency for Toxic Substances and Disease Registry. It's kind of scary. Did you know what it meant? (laughs) Well, what I found out is that those polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, which is why I added smell to our subtitle of our show, are a group of more than 100 chemicals that are released into the atmosphere from incomplete burning of coal, oil, gas, garbage, and other organic substances like tobacco and charbroiled meat. Is everyone going to become a vegetarian now? (laughs) It's usually found as a mixture containing two or more compounds such as soot. And I was just thinking, that is the air we're breathing. (laughs) So the polynuclear aromatic hydrocarbons are something we need to be aware of. (laughs) And I didn't realize that poem was maybe about toxic relationships. I don't know.
4: I think it has a lot of ways it can be read. I think it is part of that. I think it's also kind of talking about the universe, so the galaxy. I do think that it's also talking about maybe a relationship with a partner or individual or anything like this. I think one of what has been really great about this collaboration with Martin and I is that I kind of set up a rule where I asked that he wouldn't tell me how he came about writing the poem. So I don't have any background material from him as to, like, what the poem is about until I'm absolutely completely done with that particular project. And then we have a discussion about it afterwards where I'm like, hey, this is how I interpret it. This is what I got from it. Or, like, when I would look up things, sort of research. And it's really interesting to see if we become aligned or not or, like, how he sees it a different way afterwards or vice versa.
0: I think it definitely has a lot of different elements in it in that way. So when you see her work at Little Haiti Cultural Complex, you will see the poetry on the wall, the words on the wall. Are there any other thoughts you have about how this show relates to the future for you as an artist, having that exhibition opportunity in that setting?
4: The future is always there. (laughs) (laughs) So I think it's an automatic thing. For sure, always thinking forward and always moving forward and not backwards. It made a lot of sense that Marie invited me into the show. I'm really happy to be a part of it, as well as with all the other artists. But maybe this is something that is just always in my self-conscious anyways.
3: Yeah, and you know, the show is really about, we know the issues that we have to deal with right now. We know what's wrong, what's not working. But it's, it's about, okay, so what happens after that? What is this future that we envision for ourselves? And how is that going to take shape? And I think as artists, naturally, like Giovanna's saying, the future's like always there. You create mm-hmm. first within your mind. Once you have that image or concept, you're making from something that you already know can exist. That's a big part of the show. And everyone has that ability, not just artists. Every human has that potential within themselves. So it's about tapping into that and really creating a life and a future for ourselves that we want to be a part of
0: continuing on with this idea of the future, our next voice in the room is going to be Ms. Al Soto, who is the first ever art and public life resident for the city of Miami Beach. I don't know many cities that have such a position.
6: Uh, New York City
0: New York City has
6: Several of them, but uh, we can thank Merrill Latterman Eucalyptus for that but not specifically on issues of climate change sea level
0: rise. Right. I was thinking about Tanya Bruguera being the first artist in residence for the Department of Immigration and what difference that made for her life, considering she was in city arrest in Havana to be invited to be part of the landscape in New York and was able to continue her practice and grow and share so much in that role. And what I like about Mitzal, he has been involved here in Miami. He's went to school in Chicago. He has a relationship up there. But his continued fascination was sand and water. And we've seen it during Art Basel. One time he made a huge beach blanket and invited people to come and hang out at the beach during Art Basel, which, you know, it's not a bad idea <laughs> considering how frantic it gets in our world. He keeps coming back with these relationships, these ideas about water and the environment. That's obviously why you were selected. Your proposal to be the public life resident, tell us about that. What was your idea?
6: I could put it in two parts. One would be to, as part of my kind of embedding into the city, was to use and repurpose objects and also behaviors or actions that are involved with the city's public works department and beyond that would be to essentially make create public opportunities or programs installations where essentially i i just told the city i want people to see each other i want to create these moments where hopefully we can platform and reframe ingredients that are already present in a way that makes people look at them again and in relation to that, look at each other again.
0: Let's scroll back a little bit to Mm -hmm. an earlier public project you did that I think led to your selection for this opportunity with Art Center South Florida and the city of Miami Beach, which was a project called Flood Relief. Tell us about that. It was an Art in Public Spaces commission. And it was really interesting. I went down to see it myself. It took place at the edge of Biscayne Bay next to the Paras Art Museum in Miami. Tell us what it looked like mm-hmm. and what happened.
6: So I was asked to, to propose something as part of a public program that was Brandy Reddick was putting together with the county at the time. The topic was sea level rise. I was already thinking about these objects that are used for temporary public use, signifiers of improvement or mitigation. And I will never forget driving down Indian Creek Boulevard before they had repaired the seawall. And there was these water pumps, and the water was all at the same level. They were just pumping water out into the intercoastal, basically doing nothing but being this kind of like person with a sign that's like, nothing to see here, just keep driving. So I just stole that from the city. (laughs) And I repurposed three water pumps that are used for emergency flood relief position them by the water and, and basically turn them into fountains. So these fountains would pump water from the bay and shoot it back into the bay. And they were manned by myself and two other performers. And we had a choreography with the pumps and not only operating them, but lounging next to them. And we also, with that, had a night program where I invited local composer, Oscar Bustillo to play classical music along with the pumps, which were very loud, very stinky diesel-powered pumps, and so it created this cacophonous dichotomy. And then I also invited Nathaniel Sandler to read a piece that he had written, and Cherry Pickman, a local poet, and Jenna Balfe, who I've collaborated many times with, to do a dance piece.
0: So all that took place right outside the Paris Art Museum. And we have a brief sound of that experience. It's very brief. You'll know exactly what you would have heard if you'd been there.
6: So that's basically the water hitting the water in the bay. And these engines, I mean, they're, they're huge diesel-powered engines.
0: How many hours a day did that unfold? I know you had to stop now and again to let the machines cool down or something. Yeah. Because <laughs> that was like more than they're used to doing, or I guess it's not. It shouldn't be more than they're used to doing. During a flood? No,
6: I think we were just turning them off and on and kind of playing with them more than they're used to. So that, like with any car, if you're going to be shifting like crazy, it's going to go through a bit more strain than it's used to. We would put them on for about five to seven hours a day for a week.
0: That sound in this conversation makes me want to give a shout-out to my friends and the community in Trinidad this week. Mm -hmm. If we've watched any of the news, the sound that we heard just now They had no pumps to get rid of the water. Their streets were rivers and a large part of the country is underwater. People are on the roofs. I mean, it's a very real thing, this climate change and this challenge, especially for the communities in the Caribbean where they're in constant peril from the hurricanes. They had an earthquake on top of the flooding and it's just something I want to recognize that we're here high and dry right now. A year ago, we had our own hurricane experience here in Miami. And I'm wanting to hear, before we go into how sand is unfolding, I just thought it'd be great to hear like, what is your personal and collective experience with climate change or flooding or rain, the impact, how you've seen it shift for you? Just one vignette, Quinn. Do you have any thoughts about your own personal experience, like if you had to take shelter?
2: I haven't had too much of a material contact with climate change yet, only that when I speak to people who are just a bit older than I am, they're alarmed by what I understand as the way things have always been, because I'm just born at the kind of perfect time so that I've always understood the weather as something that's constantly in flux. I've never had a standardized climate in my conscious life so far. I think that's a new experience, but it's going to become a very standard experience.
1: Yeah, I would say to follow with Quinn. I mean, uh, summers are becoming; uh, they everything's shifting. Christmas and the spring break, and everything is totally shifting around to what I remember. Uh, Seventy-five, baby. So. I've uh, been through some. <laughs> Forty-three years old, so I remember, uh, you know, spring break happened in March. You know, it was uh, sunny and everything. But now we have uh, winter storms still hitting us in March. Now, so I would say maybe that's what I've experienced.
4: I'm originally from LA, and I guess the one thing that has still stuck with me is that I remember growing up raining, and then as I got older, it not raining. <laughs> mm-hmm. So in, in a way that it, it really, really, really didn't see rain at all, and that's definitely still has been an issue with Los Angeles, as I think most people know. So I think that's probably a really like prevalent thing that I've actually experienced and seen in transition.
3: Well, I was born and raised in Colorado, so... My connection to nature was cemented from a young age, and I've noticed in all the different places I've lived, I definitely feel and see changes within the climate. When I first moved to Miami, it was the summer of 2005, and it was that summer where we had the three hurricanes, August, September, October, so that was like baptism to Miami. (laughs) Welcome. (laughs) And even in the short time that I've lived in Miami, I have noticed changes, you know, so... I think if we tune into it as humans, again, just like getting back to the core of us being beings here on this planet that are a part of nature, you can see that things are changing, whether it's like, I don't know, I can't see a million years out or behind. But, uh, yeah, you know, things are happening for sure.
0: Well, Missal, you chose to work with the basic element that is the foundation for Miami Beach. It used to be a mangrove swamp. Mm-hmm. It became a beach and sand being the active factor there and becoming a business. I loved reading the background of your ideas for what you're doing, and look what you did. You brought us together to talk about sand and climate change. Tell me what what's going to happen with sand. That's your first project and sort of mm-hmm. the foundation of everything you'll be doing as a resident.
6: Foundation's a key word, right? So. I think it's important when you, especially if you have a residency or you're asked to be in an exhibition, just constantly ask yourself, why? Like, why am I here? What am I What am I doing here? How did I get here? Having the luxury, really, of this ability to have a whole, an entire year dedicated to an issue and a site and a community, I really dedicated this summer to looking back at how Miami Beach was founded, why we were even here. Because a lot of times, you hear, we're not supposed to be here. We're not supposed to be even south of Lake Okeechobee. This was all swamp, but we're here. Millions of people are already here and we're gonna continue to be here. I quickly realized going to meetings with the city that capitalism's gonna find a way to keep this place afloat in some capacity. And so let's, instead of having a sense of doom and gloom that we're not gonna be here, and I wanted to be a bit more practical and say, okay, so if we're gonna be here, how can we make it better and better for all of us, not just the 1%. Really thinking about a foundation for my time here, I quickly settled on sand, sand being this land reclamation, being this process that was employed, especially by Carl Fisher, to create land out of what was once swamp. And so thinking about that and going back to those kind of core foundational processes, I'm hoping will allow me to better kind of address anything moving forward. So this project is phase one of hopefully what will be three phases of projects with the city.
0: We are talking about the first activation will be, or is already happening. It's Mm -hmm. growing over there on the sand. If you look on Instagram, you'll see I posted a little video. Misal is working with city materials, sand from the city, 11,000 Approximately,
6: yeah. I think we're filling them more than we had anticipated. (laughs) So it looks like it's going to be more like 7,000. But yes, lots of sand, which was going to be used for beach re-nourishment, so it's beach sand, and then these thousands of sandbags from the city, it'll all go back to the city once it's done.
0: What I saw was the beginning of some stacks of bags Mm -hmm. lining up, getting ready to take a shape. There will be three shapes, Mm -hmm. the space will evolve, and it's meant to be a meeting place, a social space, so...
6: I divided it into amphitheater, theater, and arena, thinking about the architectural references, going back to the Greeks and the Romans, and also thinking about how sand is used in concrete production, and thinking about how sand globally is, is this finite resource. A lot of people don't realize we're running out of sand. So I'll be building this structure over the course of a month. Every day, it'll be changing. And so at those three moments, they'll be programming. The structure will get bigger. Over time, But it will never be finished, and before it can be finished, it will all go back to the city.
0: It's interesting over there. It looks like a state park. It's got a little sign, and volunteers are signing up to fill sandbags. There's a schedule of activation. (laughs) The first one will be on the 28th of October. Mm -hmm. Tell us what will take place in that space as it grows.
6: I've really kind of fallen in love again with the dialectical process, specifically Hegel's interpretation of the dialectic. And so I took that as a model for these three steps. And so the first one will be what he would call an abstract, or this idea of just thinking about the facts in a way. So I've invited Dr. Paul George to talk about Miami Beach history, Marvin Dunn to talk about black Miami history, and Samuel Tommy to talk about indigenous history. And then I've also asked archival feedback to make a new piece. A lot of these people that I've invited have also been commissioned and make new works. They'll be premiering as this goes. The second day, which was the theater, will be referencing the Roman theater, and that's when the structure will be a Roman theater, and essentially, and those will be performances, screenings, poetry will be read. I've invited someone to be a poet in residence of sorts, this Glenda Romaldo.
0: We were talking about possibly you would share a bit of uh, of one of the poems that people might hear. That can be our finale.
6: Okay. Should I do that now? Yeah, let's do it. Fantastic. So this is Glenda Romaldo. So she's a local poet. And like I said, I've invited her to come up with new works in reference to the programming that she'll be seeing. But this is a, a previous work from a couple of years ago, and it's called Potency Toxicity. How many islands are tired of disappearing? A lover once told me the ocean is a desert. Sometimes when I fly, clouds look like icebergs, all endless and inviting. And when the sky is clear, Desperation lines destinations and these imaginary borders. Sun growling itself to sleep while I sit, sift, shift in graying sand. I grab your arm when we see shadows in the water. I look around and see slash feel nothing but the rising tide. We're both so good at waving and drowning. We left a trail of pomegranate seeds, organic littering glistening, all of us glowing in violet neon light post-basking in the turkish baths eyes foggy and skin still steaming almost to the touch almost touching almost how delusional of us to romanticize meteorological mayhem liberation from material wealth can be a form of rich living in capitalism revivalism and brutalism in regurgitated art deco These vacant vacation condos sprouting like ravenous corals. Flippant, flickering sunlight strips above your empty white bed. This must be heaven, I thought. Impending doom doesn't look so bad from here, you say to me, leaning on the sill of your lonely, lovely penthouse suite window. A hazy exhale and so many Sundays.
0: Really nice. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We need more than one hour for this show. (laughs) Thank you. I'm glad you think so (laughs) Well, this is Kathy Bird with Fresh Art International, and we are live streaming from Jolt Radio in Miami, bringing you an awesome conversation about our collective future. Thank you for joining me in the studio, Quinn Harrelson, Troy Simmons, Marie Vickles, Giovanna Gonzalez, and Misal Soto. I really appreciated this. I thought it was a super cool experience. I want to point out that our latest podcast episode features a conversation with Creative Time director Justine Ludwig that gives you an idea of what will unfold during the 2018 Creative Time Summit in Miami, November 1, 2, and 3. And the topics we're discussing today will be the topics of discussion during those three days. We got to jump on it. It will begin with a drag show at PAM. Paris Art Museum. It will end with film screenings at Soundscape Park on Miami Beach. Our podcast is weekly. We bring you a live streaming program every Wednesday from 10 to 11 Eastern Standard Time in Miami from Jolt. Next week, we're going to set the stage for the summit with a special 60 minute program about Caribbean cultural ecologies. These are conversations I recorded on a field expedition I took to the Dominican Republic earlier this year where I met with curators and artists engaging in the Caribbean. Related to that are live shows that I did from the Dominican Republic with Leaders of Tilting Axis, this organization of curators and artists, and Live from Trinidad, where digital culture thrives. I was there just before the storm came. You can listen to our stories anytime Visit freshartinternational.com to explore more than 200 episodes in our archive. And if you like what you're hearing, keep listening and subscribe, rate, and review our podcast. It means a lot to know you're here. And thanks to followers like you, we've been sharing these conversations since 2011. We invite you to support our stories. And the Knight Foundation right now will match every dollar you give because we're one of their grantees. Go to freshartinternational.com and click on the red support button to give what you can. Stay tuned for more contemporary art talk.